Uh, before I start this week's episode, just a quick note as ever to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. That's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Also, if you'd rather read the podcast, the transcript will be available as a Kindle ebook with click all links to all the references. Just search for Financial Crime Weekly in the Kindle store, scroll past the sponsored links, and there you go. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been another busy one this week, so best to crack on with our roundup of all things financial crime. We'll look at sanctions once again, top the list of stories with more action being taken globally following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Evidence given to the Treasury, the United Kingdom Treasury Select Committee on Effective Sanctions. There's some stuff on frauds and scam adverts and an update on the progress of the Beneficial Ownership Register. Let's crack on and start with Russian sanctions, as ever. We start this week with sanctions. Where else would we start? It's been the start of every podcast. The UK has imposed more sanctions, carved out further licenses, and the Treasury Select Committee has been hearing expert evidence on effective sanctions. While in continental Europe, the EU agencies continue their work in welcoming Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian refugees. Let's start with the UK. Uh, the UK has announced further sanctions on uh, the Russian and Belarusian regimes. This time there are import bans affecting silver, wood, uh, timber products and food for discerning pallets such as caviar. It was announced in the same press release that tariff on diamonds and rubber, both from uh, Russia, and, and, uh, uh, Russia and Belarus, have uh, been increased by 35%. The full list of goods subject to additional tariffs is available on the government website. To be frank, I think it's worth a look at this since I hadn't quite realised the range of things that the United Kingdom imports from both countries which have now been further sanctioned. In addition to these further sanctions, uh, HM Treasury, together with the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, have announced two new licences. First, to allow payments to be made to Gazprom Bank to make gas available to sovereign states of the European Union where the contracts were formed before the 21st of April 2022 and this license expires on the 21st of May 2022. The second license is the form of license which we've discussed on the Financial Crime Weekly before now and relates to permitting payments where a Russian financial institution has to go through insolvency proceedings due to the imposition or impact of sanctions. This time uh, in an amendment to the VTB insolvency license it is payments to Spurbank CIB UK Limited. This amended license expires on the 3rd of April 2023. Further, on the 27th of April 2022, OFSI issued General Licence INT 2022-1679676 under Regulation 21 of the Global Anti-Corruption Sanctions Regulations 2021 and... Regulation 64 of the Russia Sanctions EU Exit Regulations 2019. Any persons may carry out actions when necessary to give effect to a United Kingdom court order for asset recovery purposes if obtained by a relevant organisation. Relevant organisation usually means something like the National Crime Agency. 
uh, where a forfeiture notice is given by an officer of a relevant organisation and those forms of order contained in paragraphs 4.2 C to E of the General Licence, which includes mostly proceeds of crime uh, orders and international orders. I suppose the way of looking at this is that the wheels of justice and asset recovery have to continue even in the face of international sanctions. In regard to investments held by United Kingdom investment entities at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Financial and Conduct Authority this week published a consultation paper protecting investors in authorised funds following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is consultation paper CP22 forward slash 8. The paper seeks views on proposals for dealing with this situation. The consultation proposes that the affected investments be moved to, to what it labels side pockets, allowing these investments to be separated from other investments in the fund. The side pocket investments could then be perhaps managed to termination where this is possible in the best interests of investors. However, I suppose the reality is that the real prospect is that those funds won't ever recover or certainly won't recover anytime soon. Uh, the consultation, better get your skates on, closes on the 16th of May 2022, so about 15 days away from time of recording. I suppose the biggest story this week from a United, King, uh, United Kingdom perspective uh, came from the Treasury Select Committee, which heard evidence on effective sanctions. Uh, this was on Monday the 25th uh, of April. The Treasury Select Committer, uh, Committee uh, heard evidence from three witnesses. Uh, Neil Roberts, who's head of marine and aviation at Lloyd's Market Association, uh, Eleanor Ribakova, who is Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute of International Finance in an earlier edition of the Financial Crime Weekly. We, of course, heard from the Institute of International Finance when it assessed the likely impact on gross domestic product by the sanctions, uh, gross domestic product of Russia, of course. And the third witness was Dr. Nigel Gould Davies, who is Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Since there wasn't much happening on Monday afternoon, I watched the lot and there was a good deal of value from the three witnesses across a range of issues. Not possible to cover everything, I'm afraid, but the following is certainly worth noting. Dr Gould Davis opened by explaining the unprecedented nature of the sanctions, not only in their scale, something which was also touched on by Miss Rybakova, but also in the coordination which took place for their implementation across the international community. This response, which he favoured over a fractured approach where sovereigns responded in a solitary manner, kind of individual action, uh, had caught the Russian authorities out a bit. They hadn't really expected the scale or the level of coordination. They might, I suppose, have expected harsh sanctions, possibly akin to the sanctions imposed in 2014 following the annexation of Crimea, but these sanctions, the most recent ones, have had a superadded effect. Indeed, such is their likely impact, Dr Gould-Davies went on to say that the Russian economy uh, is likely to experience a significant structural shift. While the impact of the sanctions is being felt, the full impact will not be known in the early stages, but should be monitored, so uh, the evidence was, over coming months and years. Of course, I would say here, and as I discussed in the Financial Crime Weekly last week, the Russian authorities have decided to stop publishing relevant economic data. 
out of a desire, I suppose, to control the information war. Uh, so it may be difficult to assess the full impact of the sanctions longer term because of this radio silence which has been adopted by the Russian regime. That said, the initial impact is significant, and the projection is that there could be a real fall in GB GDP of at least 10%, which will hit the real income of Russians and inevitably lead to higher prices given the restricted supply of goods. Those supply limitations come from the sanctions, of course, but Dr. Gould Davies noted that one of the unique features of the Russian action in Ukraine has been the voluntary private sector boycott of Russia. Uh, I would say that this unique circumstance is purely down to risk management, I suppose. First of all, there's the possible legal risk of breaching sanctions, even if operating in some obscure and possibly unaffected area, because of the interconnected nature of international transactions. Secondly, there is the reputational harm which would come from being seen to deal or give succour to a despotic regime. Interestingly, Dr. Gould Davies drilled down into the real problems with the sanctions and what they might cause. For example, he identified that there may be difficulties in making the Russians daily bread because of wheat supply shortages. Trousers might start falling down because of the problems of button supply. He didn't actually talk about falling down trousers, that's my dramatic license. But they are apparently experiencing shortages of buttons for clothing. And though Russia is in fact a significant producer of metals, it imports its nails. It's incredible what you can learn from parliamentary committees. In terms of the ruble, which of course is the Russian currency, both Dr. Gould Davies and Ms. Rybakova identified that at the present time, the ruble is probably artificially priced and not in any way reflective of the underlying direction of travel of the Russian economy. This is due to the administrative restrictions on its trading and other interventions which have been made since the imp imposition of sanctions. However, Ms. Rybakova identified that though there was illiquidity and there were bank runs in the early days of the crisis, the action that has been taken to stabilise that is, freezing foreign currency deposits, imposition of capital controls and increasing interest rates, all of which have been done by the Russian authorities since the imposition of sanctions, uh, did appear to work and that the ruble has retained to around about its pre-invasion level. Indeed, Ms. Rybakova remarked that such was the success of these restrictions that some were, in fact, being relaxed. She noted particularly that interest rates had been reduced after their initial spike. Ms. Rybakova commented that it was expected that the Russian financial system is likely to remain stable for what she described as the foreseeable future, though no specific timeline was placed on that. One area of impact which, has identified, which was identified by her was on the Russian, Russian federal budget if there was an address to the issue of energy, which has been a particularly hot potato since these sanctions were introduced. Oil and gas revenues account, uh, by her evidence, account for 35 to 50 percent of the federal budget, but that is likely to increase as, the, as a proportion as the effect of sanctions impacts other revenue sources, for example, other taxes um, as GDP starts to take a hit. On GDP, there was agreement with Dr. Gould Davies that the sanctions would have a significant impact on GDP of anywhere up to 15.15%. 
While Dr Gould Davies, as indicated earlier, preferred the collective approach to sanctions which had taken place so far, he was asked to express a view on whether there was anything which the United Kingdom could do itself which might have a further impact on Russia. He identified that the United Kingdom could, through its influence with the Commonwealth, work with British overseas territories, or BOTs, some of which are tax havens, of course, in making clear the narrative that these sanctions are global and not merely sanctions imposed by the West. Uh, the use of bots, in fact, was raised by the IMF uh, in its financial system review uh, of the United Kingdom, which was undertaken uh, last, uh, last month. Uh, this was discussed in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast a couple of weeks ago, so you may want to go back and listen to that. Secondly, further restrictions could be placed on those who wish that to bring their dirty money to the London laundrette to be cleaned. Dr. Gould Davies appeared to suggest that those wishing to get money out of Russia have always look, looked to a destination with a solid respect for the rule of law, a point which is also echoed by Miss Rybakova. So the chances of their funds in a country with respect for the rule of law chances of their funds being taken are greatly reduced. One consequence of this has been that the oligarchs have tended to pay less attention to the political situation at home, allowing Putin and those closely allied to the decision-making processes to get away with a lot more. By closing off the London laundrette, the elites may be forced to influence Russian policy. Beyond London and allied to the first of Dr Gould Davies' points, uh, was that this should also be done in the BOTs, the British Overseas Territories. Dr Gould Davies identified that the Register of Beneficial Ownership of Companies registered overseas should stick to its current timeline, since it has slipped a little bit since 2018. It should certainly not be permitted to slip further. Uh, Ms Rybakova also identified that action could be taken to tighten and synchronise inconsistencies in sanctions because the current range of sanctions imposed on different institutions etc creates compliance challenges and yes i suppose it must be a nightmare trying to implement challenges from different regimes in different ways across different jurisdictions but anyway further the confusion can arise around labeling since some sanctions which are classified as financial sanctions actually operate as trade sanctions for example, the ability of certain banks to receive payments for energy supplied by Russia. Coordination and unity in this sector will be tricky given the reliance of continental Europe on energy supplied by Russia, though there have been movements on this over the last seven days, with many European nations seeking to wind down their dependence on Russian energy. We see this particularly this week in relation to Germany, which has uh, announced that it plans to get uh, reduced dependence and of course um, Bulgaria and Poland refused to pay for their energy supplies in rubles so Russia turned off the taps. Uh, of the sanctions uh, Ms Rybakova said that the freezing of foreign currency reserves has not been a failure it's been one of the positive impacts of it. The lesson Russia took from the 2014 sanctions following the annexation of Crimea was to build reserves in what Ms. Rybakova described as Fortress Russia so that any restriction from capital markets could be withstood in the future. However, by sanctioning the Russian central bank and freezing assets, the fortress was compromised. We cut it off, said Ms. Rybakova. Dr. Gould Davies agreed with this statement about the impact of the capital freeze. 
Mr Roberts was principally there to talk about insurance. It was his, it was his function as a, a person giving evidence. Uh, quite a bit uh, was said, but I, I picked up a couple of points which I thought were worth flagging. Around 90 to 95% of aviation war insurance is done through the London market. Now, while Russia might be out of this market for insurance, it may be able to go to India or Japan as an alternative, but that there's no indication that this is taking place. Uh, sanctions have not been put on insurance and the marine sector because of the importance, or the import, I suppose, of energy from Russia. However, if sanctions were imposed on marine, then alternative markets even exist for that. Now, they're the key parts that I took from that evidence. There's a lot of it, 30-odd pages of it. Uh, there's a lot more to the discussion. I'd urge you to have a look at it, uh, particular, particularly if you work in a centre which is dedicated to insurance, because there were some fire, uh, quite niche comments made in relation to that. Across the Channel in mainland Europe, we'll leave the United Kingdom there for a while. Across the Channel in mainland Europe, there continue to be actions related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The European Central Bank has published a series of frequently asked questions on the conflict and bank supervision. It's easy to read and sets out the role of the European Central Bank together with who has responsibility for what when it comes to the implementation and monitoring of sanctions compliance. Further this week, there is uh, being proposed, uh, more is being proposed, I suppose, uh, to to make life easier for those dispersed from Ukraine since the start of the contract, uh, conflict. You'll recall over the last couple of weeks on the Financial Crime Weekly that there were proposals to allow Ukrainians to, ex to exchange up to 10,000 hovinias, the Ukrainian currency, providing around 310 euros per person. Well, this week the European Banking Authority has urged financial services firms to provide and national supervisors to support the provision of basic financial services to refugees. Of course, this proposal has practical challenges for those financial services firms willing to engage since they have anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism compliance obligations to meet, uh, to meet, which might not necessarily be compatible with the need for haste required in this context. To this end, therefore, the European Banking Authority statement does provide some guidance on how uh, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism compliance obligations may be met. For example, when onboarding, identity verification by passport may not be necessary, but instead, evidence that the prospective customer is a Ukrainian refugee may suffice. Further, financial services firms may postpone to a later date the customer due diligence at the initial stage of onboarding, so long as the conditions for simplified customer due diligence under guidelines 4.41, 9.15 and 10.18 of the European Banking Authority's Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Risk Factors Guidelines are satisfied. This is an important move. Increasingly, access to banking and financial services provision is more of a challenge as banks and cash machines close across the European continent. The pandemic has hastened the push to a cashless society, with many companies operating on a card-only basis. Thus, this is a crucial step in making life easier for those fleeing conflict to integrate and manage their financial well-being. While there are challenges, particularly in the management of anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism risks, the overall policy proposal is a welcome one. Right, I think that's about it for sanctions this week. There'll be more next week, I'm pretty sure. 
We'll turn our attention now to a few fraud stories that have made the headlines in financial crime this week. Quite a lot churning over, a couple of convictions and proposals to intervene to save individuals from becoming victims of fraudulent activity. First of all, a jury in London has convicted several individuals involved in a Ponzi scheme concerning the purchase of properties along the route of Crossrail as it runs east out of London to Essex. For those of you who don't know, Crossrail runs right through Europe. Right through Europe? No, it doesn't. Runs right through London, east to west or west to east, depending on your perspective. And what this company was proposing to do was purchase properties, renovate them and sell them at a profit along the route of Crossrail from London into Essex in the east to the east. In reality, only one property was purchased, while every trick in the book was then employed to give Essex and London Properties Limited, which was the company established as the fraud vehicle, the appearance of legitimacy. As with every Ponzi scheme, more and more investors needed to be added to the fraud to supply the earlier participants with a stream of investment income. The possibility that there may have been fraud involved in the scheme came to light in May 2017 when the Serious Economic Crime Unit was made aware of it by investors. Over 800 people invested between £5,000 and £140,000 with the fraud raising sums in excess of £13 million. Of the seven charged, one pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit fraud and conspiracy to launder the proceeds of fraud while six others stood trial. Of those, four were found guilty either of conspiracy to commit fraud and conspiracy to launder and the acquisition of criminal property. The other two men were found not guilty. Sentencing will take place on the 25th of July this year and a confiscation hearing will also be likely. In further fraud news, two individuals involved in a fraudulent pensions transfer scheme have been jailed for a total of 10 years. The scheme, masterminded by a third party who had passed away during the conduct of the scheme, was continued, resulting in losses totalling £13.7 million. The detail of the scheme, should you wish to read further, is detailed across, variously across uh, the internet and in an article by, a very good article by, uh, in Professional Advisor. However, I think it's important with these instances always to be mindful of the human impact of the actions of fraudsters, especially when it's pensions fraud whether victims are elderly, looking to spend their remaining years in the sun. And there's a good human interest perspective on this story in the Doncaster Free Press. It reports that a former coal miner who was defrauded under this scheme with dreams of a Spanish retirement was duped out of £114,000 by the couple. This not only took away his children's inheritance, but he still has to work in order to get by not to mention the severe stress that all this likely caused him. Now, scam ads, preventing fraud. We move to the opposite end of the spectrum from the victims to preventing people from becoming victims. This week, the Advertising Standards Authority in the United Kingdom has issued some numbers from its scam ad alert system, which it launched in June 2020. The scheme set up to tackle the problem of scam adverts online operates in conjunction with major platforms including Facebook, Google and TikTok, whatever that is. The numbers from the 1st of March 2021 to the 25th of March 2022 make for interesting reading. The ASA reports that it received 1,251 reports of possible scam ads 
which resulted in 67 scam ad alerts being generated. Of those 67, 14 were social media ads, while 53 were ads on other online media, so publishers' sites and apps and so on. The response from the platforms hosting the scam ads was broadly strong, with responses within 48 hours um, of the alert. Uh, 80% of the time it was to confirm removal of the scam ads. In terms of trends, the majority of scam ads, um, the alerts, the scam ad alerts, and this can come as no real surprise given what we've been saying in the previous few weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly, they were cryptocurrency scams. Uh, but there were other forms of scam too, such as energy saving device scams, which are supposed, I mean, they're really particularly exploitative at times of energy price hikes. And ads for diet pill subscription scams. And this brings to mind a story a friend of mine told me um, at the extreme end of the diet pill scams market, uh, which is uh, where you'll find DNP or dinitrophenol which has resulted in deaths by users which have been and which have been subject to a prolonged campaign by the Food Standards Agency. Now, allied to this story, and I'm just going to go back here in time to the 9th of March, uh, as part of the online, the proposed online safety bill, the government has announced a new standalone duty requiring firms to address the issue of fraudulent advertising. As part of the bill, the full detail of which is apparently imminent, companies who benefit from them uh, will be under an obligation to take direct action to tackle these ads. A uh, couple more stories and then we're done for this week. The UK Treasury has announced £25 million in funding, which will be provided to establish the Public Sector Fraud Authority, or PSFA, to seek to recover funds fraudulently obtained under various COVID-19 support schemes and to identify companies and, and individuals seeking government contracts who might be regarded as suspicious. The PSFA, which will be up and running by July 2022, will look to recruit data analysts and economic crime investigators over coming weeks and months. This is a good thing. Uh, the formation of this agency is, I, think, I suppose, broadly to be welcomed. But the timing is incredibly convenient. It does feel, certainly to me, like there's a bit of news agenda management at play this week, especially given that the Public Accounts Committee report was published on the 27th of April, which said that the government was complacent in its approach to preventing what it described as eye-watering levels of fraud. The Public Accounts Committee report echoes the report of the National Audit Office in December 2021, which found that the government's action to limit the exposure of public funds to fraudulent loans was inadequate. And finally this week, we've had an update on the Register of Overseas Entities. The Paul Scully, who is the Minister for London and Parliamentary Undersecretary of State, Minister for Small Businesses, Consumers and Labour Markets. He probably doesn't use that full title all the time. Uh, he reported to Parliament on the progress which had been made by Companies House on the Register of Overseas Entities following the royal assent being given to the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act 2022. He stated that the government had been working at pace to see that the register is in place as soon as reasonably practicable and that good progress had been made since the royal assent. The two main features of the work involved establishing the register which are technical and legal. 
The technical aspect involves the preparation of the register by the design teams at Companies House working with the land registries in the United Kingdom. To ensure that the relevant systems and processes are established and ready for the operation of the register. The legal aspect, of course, involves the drafting and implementation of secondary legislation to define, to define rather, relevant aspects of the register. Drafting of those regulations will begin imminently, apparently, and they'll be available for parliamentary scrutiny as soon as possible. That's it for this week. It was quite a long one this week. Doesn't surprise me, there was a lot going on. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as ever, you'll hear from me, all being well, next week. 